If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, looking at verses 22 through 25, the end of 1 Peter. Continuing our series going through the book of 1 Peter that we've been in for uh, four or five weeks now, picking up where we left off last week. We'll be in this week at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22, and that should be on the screen behind me if you need it there. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22, says this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is called the city of brotherly love because that's what that word means from the Greek. Philadelphia, love of the brother or the brethren. It's the same word used by Peter when he talks about brotherly love here in verse 22. But for people who know that that's the nickname of that city, that that's the nickname for Philly, it's almost always used as an ironic joke. Philadelphia's reputation isn't typically marked by brotherly love. Let's just think about the the realm of sports and use those for examples. Philly fans are known for being particularly brutal to opposing teams and even their own teams whenever they aren't playing so well. In 1968, the Eagles had a Christmas-themed halftime show, and fans who were sitting out in the cold in a terrible game didn't enjoy the Santa that they had to fill in for the original Santa that they had hired because the weather kept them from showing up. So they got tired of this Santa during the halftime show and started making snowballs out of the snow that they were sitting on and just started pelting this poor guy who showed up the last second in a Santa costume to be Santa, to bring joy to all of this entire stadium. In 1999, Phillies fans threw D batteries at St. Louis Cardinals outfielder J.D. Drew because they had drafted him the year before, and he refused to sign with them, waiting a year later to be able to sign with the Cardinals. Their reaction to that was, let's bring D batteries to the stadium and throw them at this guy in the outfield. In 2010, police arrested a Phillies fan for somehow purposefully projectile vomiting on an 11-year-old girl and her father during the game. When the Eagles were in the Super Bowl last year, the police did the same thing they had to do before every major game in Philadelphia. They greased the light poles. They rubbed Crisco all over all of the light poles so that people during their riot slash celebrations can't climb them and eventually topple them. That is the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. That may not be the perfect example of what love for one another looks like that kind of culture, that kind of treatment of one another. But in today's verses, Peter gives four marks of Christian community. He shows us what a group of people who are marked by that kind of love, that kind of brotherly love for each other, are supposed to look like. So today, we'll see these four marks of Christian community in today's text. The first mark of Christian community that we can see today is that it is marked by an obedience to the truth. Christian community is marked by an obedience to the truth. Look at verse 22 having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. These verses continue with the section that we looked at last week in 1 Peter that started back in 1 Peter 1.13 where he says, Therefore, 
So he's continuing to build on what he's already said, that because we elect exiles have been born again to a living hope, therefore, because of what God has done for us and in us, we should prepare our minds. We should be holy. We should conduct ourselves with fear. But he's continuing that same thread, that same therefore today in our verses, and therefore, we should also have these kinds of relationships with one another. Our Christian community together as a church, as God's people, should be marked by an obedience to the truth of the gospel. That's actually assumed here in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. He's saying, you've already done this. This has already happened for you. Since you have done this already, since your souls have already been purified by your obedience to the truth, therefore now we should have this kind of love for each other. And the truth that he's talking about here is the truth of what he's already told them to this point in chapter 1. It's the simple truth that we, his people, are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Back from verse 2. That truth is the gospel truth. It's the truth that we've been ransomed by the imperishable blood of Christ out of our sin because of his love for us. So now, because of what he's done, we can hope fully in the future revelation of that grace. Hope fully in the moment when our faith will eventually become sight. And this truth isn't just something that we know of. It's something that we are obedient to in this verse. We can see here again, just as we have the last few weeks, that your response to the gospel message really matters. The truth of the gospel, that's objective, It has been accomplished for you completely and totally by Jesus Christ. You do not save yourself, but you do respond to what he's done. He provides the truth and he opens your eyes to see it, but you are the one who is obedient to the truth. And to be obedient to truth is to live in light of it. It's to live like it's true. You do this initially whenever you hear the gospel and respond to it, whenever you see the weight of your sin and the death that it brings, but you're also able to see then the goodness and the glory of God in Christ to bear that sin for you, to redeem you from that sin and its consequences. So the way that you are obedient to that truth, the way that you live in light of that truth that you've seen is by repenting from that sin and believing in Christ's gospel that Christ died and rose again to save you from that sin. That's how you become a Christian. And that's how you become some of the people that Peter is writing to. And it's how you're obedient to that same truth. The one who's obedient to the truth, he's the one who stops his car when he sees the sign that says the bridge is out. The truth had been revealed to him, proclaimed to him. He's seen it. He's understood it. He's believed it. So he stops driving toward disaster. He doesn't keep going on the road over the edge of the cliff. If he were to drive his car off a cliff, it no longer matters whether he would agree, yep, the bridge is out. Whether he would think, yep, that sign was telling the truth. If he actually believed it, he would have stopped. If he believed the sign, he would have lived like the sign was true. So if you claim to believe this truth, you have to be obedient to it by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation from those sins. And that obedience to the truth, that gospel message which you are obedient to, that results in a purified soul within you. Having your soul be purified by your obedience to the truth. 
Now, we have to be careful here not to take this meaning to a place it doesn't go, as if you somehow save yourself by your response, that you're the one who purifies your soul because you did the right thing. That's not what happens. Salvation is a gift and work from God. But the result of your obedience to the truth, the result of you living as if the gospel is true, the result of you repenting and believing in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul, you being saved by grace through faith, the result of those things is a purified soul. Because you've been saved by Christ, now your soul, which was red with sin, is now as white as snow. You've been purified. None of the former sins, none of the terrible actions of your old self apply to you anymore. Peter's saying that a Christian community is marked, first of all, by it being made up of people who are obedient to the truth, by being made up of people who are Christians. The group of elect exiles, his audience here, those are Christians. Those are the people who make up a Christian community. If you today in this room are a non-Christian here, you need to recognize that I'm not actually talking about you right now, though I hope that I am talking to you right now. These marks of Christian community, a soul purified by obedience to the truth, though they aren't yours yet, they could be. They could be today. If you'll respond to the gospel today, if you'll be obedient to the truth today, live like it is true and therefore repent of your sins and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then all that we're talking about in terms of Christian community, all of that is open to you. You can be a part of this same group which enjoys these same privileges and is marked by these same things. A church should have clearly defined boundaries. We should know exactly who is and is not a member. We should have a rough understanding of who is and is not a Christian because we have our membership. But crossing that boundary from non-member to member, that should be what we earnestly hope and desire for everyone here. If you're not a Christian, then be obedient to the truth. If you are a Christian, then join us. Become a member of our Christian community so that you can be a part of these marks with us together. The way that you do that here is by signing up for the membership class I talked about earlier. You go through the process. You, you learn about us. You conduct an interview where you just are, are able to tell us your story. You're able to tell us who Christ is and what he's done for you. And then you're welcomed in. There is a bar for entry, but man, we try to put that bar as low as we can while also emphasizing how important it is that you go over that bar. We want it to be easy. We want people who don't believe in the gospel to believe in the gospel and then become a member of this church. But we also have to know and understand that in order for us to, as a church to have a true Christian community, our church has to be made up of people who are truly Christians. That's the bar. But man, that's such an easy bar to cross because it's already been done for you in Jesus Christ. A Christian community is marked by its obedience to the truth. That's the entryway in. But a Christian community is also marked by brotherly love. That's the second mark of Christian community in today's verses. It's marked by brotherly love, continuing in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This brotherly love is evidently a reason why your souls have been purified in verse 22 having purified them for a sincere brotherly love with which we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's actually the only command in today's passage, to love one another. 
those of us who've been born again, who have purified souls, the next step, the natural outworking of that purification, its goal is love for one another. So let's look at what this love is supposed to be like from these verses. It says it should be sincere. It's not phony. It's not fake. It's real and true. We don't act like we love each other. We, we love each other. When we ask how you're doing, we mean it. Don't feel like it's an imposition or like it's not right, the right answer to say, man, I'm doing awful. Me and my wife, we just can't stop fighting. My kids won't listen. I can't get them to stop staring at their phones for two minutes. I haven't prayed. I haven't read my Bible in weeks. I am not doing well, brother. That's why we ask the question, isn't it? To get that kind of honest answer. The person who asked the question, if we have this kind of sincere love that the text is telling us to have, they are not going to treat you like the guy behind the counter at Walmart would treat you if you answered like that to him. You unload all that on him, he's going to point you to the self-checkout line. But if you unload that on the person behind you in the pew, in the chair, then I think if we have a sincere love for each other, we listen. We try to understand. We try to help. We pray. Our love simply can't be sincere if we aren't willing to enact that love when someone really needs it. But it also has to be a brotherly love, a familial love, a love that won't allow the relationship to stop, a love that still exists tomorrow, no matter what happens today. This kind of love endures because it's founded not on preference, not on choice, but on lineage, on shared blood. You don't get to choose who's your brother. They just are your brother. And you love them simply because they are your brother. You don't love them because they're cool, because they're perfect, because they're everything you think they should be. You simply love them because they're your brother. And that's the same love that you should have for fellow Christians. You may not have chosen them to be members of this same church. If it were up to you, maybe the membership bar would be a little bit higher, just enough to keep them out. You may not have chosen them to be saved by God. You might wish that they were different in a hundred ways. But the people in this room, the members of this church, are your family. So you should love them with a brotherly love that doesn't stop. You should also love them earnestly, the text says. Now, earnestness and sincerity, those are very closely linked. They're, they're very similar words. But I think the difference primarily is in intensity. To be earnest is to be intensely sincere, to be urgently sincere, to be sincere like it really matters to you. So it's not enough just to be genuine in our love for each other. We have to be intensely genuine. To carry through the example from a minute ago, the guy who asks how you're doing and is sincere, he can just say it. Just say, Morning, how you doing? He might truly mean that. And if you do respond with the kind of despair that I talked about, if he loves you, I think he'll respond accordingly. But let's be honest, most people who ask that, even if they are sincere, they're not necessarily looking for that kind of honesty. He'll sincerely take it if you give it to him, but he'd rather you just say, yep, can't complain, and keep walking. That sounds like a perfect response to him. But I think the earnest man doesn't just respond appropriately, he asks urgently. He sits down next to you in the chair. He looks you in the eye and he says, hey, you seem a little on edge. 
When you were in class, you seemed a little bit shorter than you usually do. Is everything okay? How are you doing? How are the kids? Are, are they okay? Or how are they doing in school? What about your marriage? Tell you what, let's get lunch this week, and we can talk about what's been going on. We can talk through some of this and see if I can help. Do you see the difference there? Sincerity, I think, is present in both of those options of just how are you doing and what I just said. But one of them is simply sincere, and the other one is earnest in their sincerity. I think it's roughly the same question. You might have roughly the same response whenever you unload on him, but one is sincere, which is good, but the other, I think, is meeting this requirement of our love being earnest, and we should be earnest. This love has to also be pure. It can't be mixed in its love and affection for your fellow believers. It's pure because it comes from a pure heart. And of each of the four of these, I think pure is probably the hardest to enact in a Christian community. Sincerity isn't easy, but we at least know what it looks like. It doesn't really require that much of us just to, to ask a question and to mean that question wherever we ask it. A brotherly love, that, that's fairly easy to meet whenever you just get the requirement through your head. That it just means it can't go away. It doesn't stop no matter whatever, whatever it is they do. It's not always great. It's not always your brother's wedding day. Sometimes you're jumping on the trampoline and he breaks your nose. But as long as you're still brothers afterwards, the next day, you've met that requirement. Brotherly love, you've got it. Even earnestness, that kind of sounds like something you can accomplish with just enough intentional effort. That, okay, I, I won't just be sincere, I'll be urgently sincere. It sounds like you can try hard enough to be earnest. And even just you trying hard enough is a sense of earnestness in itself. But purity pure love that you don't have to grit your teeth to get to. You just love them. There's no mixture there. It's love all the way down. There's no layers of disdain or dislike, even for that guy, whoever that guy is. Man, that's hard. Loving with a pure love from a pure heart takes a pure heart. It takes a new heart given to us by Christ, which allows us to love each other in this way. And can I just be real honest with you for a second? We Christians tend not to be very good at loving each other like this. We church members tend not to be very good at loving each other like this. A lot of the people that you might interact with would laugh at the idea of Christian love and community in the same way that I laugh that Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. It's a Christian love for each other. Have you met those people? Have you been to one of those churches? The simple truth is we're still sinners. We still sin. So when you get a bunch of us in a room together, guess what you end up with? A bunch of sinners in a room together committing sins against each other. Now we're supposed to have this kind of love. We're commanded to have this kind of love but we're just bad at it. And if you're sitting there thinking about someone else who is bad at it, let me just ask how much you're loving them by those kind of thoughts. How much are you loving them by keeping a record of their wrongs? By not giving them the benefit of the doubt? How much are you loving them by assuming the worst in them? Let me ask, if you deal with other people in this church, if the way that you do that is by having a problem with someone and then talking to everyone else about the problem with them before you go and talk to them about the problem you have with them, 
I don't think you're loving them with a pure heart. I think at best you've gossiped. And I think if you said anything that wasn't true, you've now slandered. And I get you might be sitting there thinking that that happens in other churches. That doesn't happen here. We would never do that. And let me just tell you, you're wrong. It absolutely happens here. We are sinners in this room just like they are in all the other rooms at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. It does happen here. I've seen it happen here. So when I say we're bad at this, I mean each and every one of us individually are bad at this. And if that's you, and I think it is, then I think you need to repent. You've sinned. You have treated the person in the pew behind you in a way that you have, are not supposed to treat them. And if you've treated them that way, if you've treated me or someone else in the church that way, then I think you fail to obey God's command to his church to love one another with a pure heart. And do you know how I know that? Because as I was reading and studying for the sermon this week, man, I had to repent as well. I was reading and thinking, oh man, I don't think I've done that. Sincere, maybe. Brotherly, I guess, I'm still here. Earnest, sometimes pure, man, pure is hard. I was convicted of all the moments I haven't loved you purely. We're bad at this. But I think we have to pursue the good design of God here in this thing that we're bad at, specifically. Because Christ said that our love for one another is how the world is going to see that we love him. John 13, verse 35, says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So he's saying that the clearest, the most obvious and necessary mark of Christian community is love for each other. And the only hope we have to meet this mark, I think, is to remember the first one. You see, we entered this community by obedience to the truth, by repenting of our sin and trusting that Christ's blood covers every sin that we commit. So for you and for me, we who fail to love each other so often, the way that we entered this community should now be how we remain in this community. Repent of the sin of failing to love each other. That's what we should do. But we should also trust that Christ's blood is enough to cover even that sin too. But the mark of a Christian community is that it should love one another with a brotherly love. The third mark of Christian community that we'll see today is a common DNA. Christian community is marked by having a shared, a common DNA with each other. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So this is the reason why we are to love each other with a brotherly love, because We are brothers. We have all been born again into God's family. We are all now heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So this, these people, we are the family that we have. But let me take this idea just one step farther. Families are created by blood. You're born into it. But families are also marked by a specific, a distinct kind of culture. Your DNA is what determines what you look like, your traits and your features. So your family directly impacts how you act and how you look, both what you do and the way you do it. 
So for we who are in God's family, the church, we should have a certain commonality among us because of that shared DNA, because of that shared family culture that we've inherited. And that shared family DNA, those traits of who we are as a people, they have everything to do, again, with how we came into the family. Since we've been born again of the imperishable seed, which we saw last week was the precious blood of Christ. So who we are now is a family that has become a family that continues in our family culture through the blood of Christ. We should be a gospel people with a gospel culture. That's what we do, and it is who we are. When we gather together, we gather to worship the God who saved us through this gospel. When we serve, we serve as a response of obedience to the God who has already done everything we needed him to do through the gospel. You see, we are not primarily a hymn church, though we do sing hymns and we will sing hymns. We are not primarily a small church, though we do have close bonds, and if you're categorizing us, you would say we're a fairly small church. We are first and foremost, ultimately, a gospel-centered church with a gospel-centered community because that is what makes us a gospel family. That's what makes us a church. That shared DNA of the gospel, that's what marks us as a true Christian community, even as we might have other things that come along with that, things that we enjoy, things that are distinctive to us. The gospel is the one thing that is absolutely distinct about us. But the final mark of Christian community in today's verses is that a Christian community is built on the word of God. We're built on God's word. Pick back up in verse 23. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. See, we began in the word. We were born again through the living and abiding word of God. When you became a Christian, it was because you heard the word of God given to you. Your parents may have prayed next to you and answered your questions at bedtime one night. You may have walked an aisle at VBS or after a church service, but what caused you to respond was the word of God, his truth spoken to your heart. And that doesn't happen only in specific ways and in specific places. That is something that is given to you through someone else preaching those truths to you. That's how you begin. But it's not just how you start, it's how you continue. For the same word of God is living and abiding. The life it gives is what caused you to come to life, to be born again. And that life continues. It abides in you even now. So just as you began in this new life through the word of God in his gospel, you now abide. You continue in that same word. And you're able to continue in that word forever because that word will also continue forever. It's never going to go away. Peter here is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, and he says, A voice cries, or voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. 
but the word of our God will stand forever. You see, your body, all that we see now, it will wither and fade. But God's word will still go on. It's going to outlast you. So you don't have to worry, you don't have to fear whether it will still hold up to the end of your life. You don't have to be afraid no matter how many non-human biologics are recovered from crash sites because his word, which will stand forever, won't change. You started in the word. You continue in the word. And you're going to keep continuing in the word forever, always abiding in the word of God, which remains. That's why we try to pump our services full of scripture as much as we can here at Pleasant Grove. We begin with a call to worship that's taken directly from Scripture passages. We sing songs that reflect passages of Scripture scripture in their words. I quote a Scripture in my pastoral prayer every week. My sermons, the goal in them is to try to deliver the Word of God to you every week. And we close every week with a good word, the benediction, a verse that's meant to send you out in the peace of the gospel. We may in the future find ways to spend more of our time together reading God's words. There are more ways to pump his word into our services. But my hope is that this isn't the only hour each week where your life is saturated by the word of God. I hope that you're steeped in it all week long. I hope that you're reading it daily. I hope you're meditating on it more than you meditate on the news, more than you meditate on anything else. And I hope when you interact with your fellow church members that you're bringing Scripture to bear in each other's lives, that even our community is marked by the Word. We can't just all hear Scripture and then leave every week. We've got to build a community, a Christian community, that is built on the Word of God, where we all started in it, we all abide in it, and we all will continue in it forever. And that might mean we have to do some things that we're not used to. That might mean that we do something weird that other people would never think to do. We repent of our sins. We repent of our gossip and slander. That might mean that we correct each other when you hear someone's unkind words, when you hear someone's unbiblical attitude, when you hear someone else's sin, that we in love go to them and call it sin and ask them to repent so that relationship between them and God can be restored and relationship between you and them can be restored. That might mean we become more focused on bringing someone from outside into our community to become a part of this community. And if that happens, then praise God. If that happens, then we'll know that we're starting to see this Christian community flower among us, bloom among us. If that happens, we'll start to know that our community life here is focused on the gospel. That's the bow that Peter ties around this passage today is that the word on which this community is built is the good news of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever and this word is the good news that was preached to you. We enter this community by our obedience to the truth of the gospel. Because we're a part of this community together, we love one another with a brotherly love. That gospel, that's our common DNA. Those are our family values. And the word of this gospel is the bedrock on which our community has to be built. And when that's the case, then I think you're able to hear even a sermon like this, which is honestly a little out of character for me. It's been pretty heavy on application. 
There's a lot of things that I've said do, do not do in this sermon. There's a lot from this text that I'm telling you to do in light of this text. But I think when the word of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation on which our entire community is built, then I think you can handle that kind of focus and application because our entire lives are being lived focused not primarily on what we do, but on what he has done. I desperately want that to be true of us. I desperately want us to be a people who experience this kind of Christian community, this kind of love together. I want that for us who are already here, and I want that for people who aren't yet in this room. But if we keep our eyes fixed on the gospel, if we continue to be obedient to this truth, then I trust that the living and abiding word of God will cause us to get there in God's time. So let's pursue this together. Let's not settle for a cheap community. Let's not settle for a cheap sincerity. Let's not settle for a fellowship together that begins and ends with a smile and a wave on a Sunday morning. But rather, let us press into a shared life together that deals with the sin we see, that corrects the errors we find, and that loves and cares for each other like brothers and sisters with a costly love. I think when that happens, I think when we get there, that's when we'll be able to say that we'll be marked by this kind of community together. And the glorious thing is we will get there. There will be a day when our community is as perfect as it could possibly be. Because every one of us in our community are going to be as perfect as we could possibly be. That the God who loved us and saved us, he will also glorify us and give us his own perfection that we can see and feel and experience for forever. And until that day, I think we pursue these things so that we can be marked by what Peter has told us we should be marked by. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather together with your people. Thank you for these people. Thank you for the gift they are to each and every one of us. Thank you for the chance to be able to enact this kind of love in this kind of community. But God, we confess we're not very good at this. We try, but we just fall woefully short. So help us. Remind us that we've been born again. Remind us of your gospel. Remind us of the fact that all of our sins have been paid for on the cross, so we don't have to be weighted down with them anymore. We can release those sins which cling so closely and run the race of endurance that's been set before us. How for that to be true of us, that as we run the race together, that we're marked by this kind of Christian community. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.